Welcome back to part two of The Fed is All Right. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. As promised from the last podcast, which I did, I don't know, two years ago, uh, we'll turn our attention to money banking and the Federal Reserve, which features a couple clips of Ron Paul. Ron Paul has a pretty big following online, which might explain the sudden popularity of this video, which seems to be from the Clinton era. The video begins with a quote claiming that the Fed is responsible to no one, and Congress can't supervise its operations. True? Well, no. The Fed was created by an act of Congress, and Congress can change the rules of the Fed's operation at any time it sees fit. If the Fed proves itself unable to keep inflation under control, Congress could simply vote it out of existence. It seems to me the Fed was created as an independent arm's-length body to address the problem of putting the money supply directly in the hands of the politicians. Remember, politicians can raise money in two ways. They can raise taxes or simply print money. Raising taxes, besides the structural checks against it, are highly unpopular with the average voter. However, most voters are not necessarily against the government just throwing money at them. So, after the quote, the flick reminds us how things used to be. For more than 20 years, the living standards of middle-class Americans have steadily declined. Incomes have remained flat or fallen, and the opportunities and security we once took for granted have begun to fade. For most families, one income no longer pays the bills. It requires two or more incomes to afford a home, pay medical and childcare expenses, and put children through school. One income could support a family. Now two people need to work to support a family, pay medical expenses, and put children through school. And yeah, that's true. But let's think a moment now. I remember back in the early 70s, I lived in a single-income household. My dad was, and still is, a university professor. My mom was a housewife. We lived in a simple house. We had one car, a Chevy Nova, which in the 1970s was an economy car, not something you sort of jacked up, threw a hood scoop on, and painted flames all over. It was about one step above a Corvair. Actually, my dad drove one of those too. Anyway, we had one phone, one TV. Eating out was a rare, rare treat. The only time we ever flew on a plane was to get to a family funeral quickly. I went to public school. I seem to recall wearing a lot of polyester clothing and eating carob instead of chocolate. And that, that was a middle-class lifestyle. It was no different from any of my friends, any of the people in my neighborhood. What about today? Well, think about a modern home today. It's not a simple kitchen, living room, three bedrooms, and an unfinished basement affair. Homes today, well, at least in America, are a whopping 50% bigger than homes in 1970. Now, if you're skeptical about some of the figures I'm going to throw out in, in this podcast, check the show notes at, at yrad.com forward slash cs for links to my sources. Houses now have Florida rooms, ensuite bathrooms, studies, libraries, finished basements, complete with a wet bar, a two-car garage. Of course, you have two cars and a pickup. You have phones and TVs in every room. You have cell phones and cell phones for your kids, internet connections, cable TV. You eat out almost as often as you eat in. You start your day with a $5 latte. Your kids need designer clothes, a Nintendo DS, $200 running shoes, the latest iPod. 
When you go to the doctor, you're not happy with a stethoscope or a simple x-ray. You want an MRI. Cars are safer than they were before. GM is not putting in ABS and airbags for free. In sum, we want more, we expect more, and, big surprise, we need to work more to get it. And since one person can only work so many hours in a week, well, you need another person to work to afford all that. Now back in about the, the late 70s, my mother eventually went back to school, got her teaching degree, and took a job as a public school teacher. Two income families did remarkably well in the 1970s. Of course, as soon as the Joneses next door start living well and you discover their secret, well, you do it too. So, families start to have more disposable income. Guess what? Merchants clue in. They want a piece of that. They try to get it by offering you more things to spend your money on, like lattes and cell phones. It's no coincidence today you face a stunning array of things to buy compared to the 1970s. Right, so the major premise of this movie is we're worse off today. We have a lower standard of living, and central banking, i.e. the Fed, is the root cause. Well, for starters, is the major premise even true? At least as far as America goes, no. Americans are not worse off. They're better off. Let's look at the data from the last census, which was in 2003. I'll grant you the information is a bit old, but then the movie was done in the 1990s. Surely the Fed hasn't vanished since then. If things were as bad as they claim, we surely would have seen things slide off the table by 2003. So, what do we find? Well, controlling for inflation, the average household income in 1967 was $33,000. In 2003, it was $43,000. Remember, this is controlling for inflation. The average household income has risen 30%. Even more interesting, despite claims about the middle class disappearing, it would appear that's true. However, they're disappearing into the upper class. In 1967, 8% of households had an income of $75,000. In 2003, it was 26%. Think about that. More than one quarter of the population now is upper class. Is life really getting worse? Well, people are living longer. The environment is actually less polluted. I remember a time when no one thought twice about just chucking their fast food garbage out their car window. Our food is safer and cheaper than ever before. In 1967, people were still getting smallpox vaccinations. Smallpox has been eliminated. Polio and TB are well on the way. In the 1950s, it was not uncommon for public pools to be shut down for fear of polio. Cancer survival rates are better than ever before. Even AIDS is no longer a death sentence. When you look at the raw stats, the picture is not all grim, but it's easy to cherry pick. Life ain't perfect, and it will never be perfect. Until we restore sound money and take away the government's ability to debase it, we have little hope of restoring the freedom and prosperity that made America great. Money baking in the Federal Reserve's second major premise is sound money is what made America great. No. Trade made America great. Think about this for a moment. North Korea could have the soundest money supply on the planet, backed by gold or mithril or whatever. But that can't rescue it from the fact it's one of the poorest nations on Earth. Why? Because it pursues a policy of self-reliance and not trading with the rest of the world. North Koreans might be good at growing cabbage, but they are pretty poor at beef production or making heavy machinery to improve worker efficiency. 
Self-reliant societies are inevitably subsistence societies. The next major premise is you want money to increase in value, not lose value. Now, yes, if your method of saving was throwing money under your bed, your money would lose value. If you did the next stupidest thing, you know, threw it into a checking account paying half a percent interest or whatever it is banks give you these days, again, you'll lose value. Hopefully, most of us don't do that with our long-term savings. Hence, the popularity of mutual funds, E-Trade, etc. If you could do absolutely nothing with your money and it increased in value, why would anyone even bother to invest in new companies and new means of producing greater efficiency? Money banking in the Federal Reserve goes over much of the same history as money as debt. Now, it should be noted, even under a gold standard, the dreaded fractional reserve banking, which I guess is a source of all our supposed ills, was still not only being conducted, but the gold standard actually allowed it. Hmm. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard of a monetary system since the start of banking that hasn't had a fractional reserve system. Has the Western banking system collapsed after 800 years of this? I haven't noticed. Another thing money banking and the Federal Reserve seems to ignore in its history is how often the government went off the gold standard when it became politically expedient. Beyond a change to the Constitution, how does one prevent any government simply going off a future gold standard when it deems necessary? As this $10,000 in new paper money circulates in the economy, it drives prices up, therefore reducing the buying power of ordinary citizens. When they spend that money, the people who get the new money first and are able to, to buy products with it uh, benefit, and the people who get it at the end lose because when they go to spend it, prices have already gone up and so they're able to buy less. In part three, uh, I'm assuming you're watching the YouTube version, which I'm linking in my show notes. At the, uh, at the 1 minute 20 second mark, we're told the Fed and the fractional reserve banking not only contribute to inflation, but as the money gets handed from bank to loan holder to car dealer to employee at Burger Chef, the dollar has less purchasing power because of inflation. Well, okay, but two problems. It's not like the dollar loses measurable value overnight. And wages tend to keep pace with inflation. So by the time the dollar gets into the hands of the Burger Chef employee, the employee either hasn't felt the inflation or the employee's wage has risen with inflation. And now the employee is getting a dollar five. Another major premise here is all inflation is bad. Well, clearly high inflation is bad. And although we're starting to see inflation edge up, a little inflation isn't a bad thing. As I noted previously with the gold standard, if your money is increasing in value, you have little incentive to invest it. Same deal with your money. Low inflation is a stick that prompts people to seek good returns by investing it. The movie also claims the effect of inflation is to concentrate wealth in the hands of the bankers and those close to the government. If this were true, as I've noted previously, household income should not have steadily risen in the last 25 years. And so many households should not have moved from the middle class to the upper class. It should all be trending the other way. By making enormous amounts of credit easily available, the Fed can also drive down interest rates, sending out the wrong signal to investors. It sets in motion an unsustainable investment boom that carries with it the seeds of its own destruction. <laughs> 
it's this business cycle that is ultimately responsible for economic disasters such as the Great Depression. Money banking in the Federal Reserve also blames business cycles on central banking. In other words, economies grow and contract. That's a business cycle. Growth, recession, growth, recession. You know the drill. But looking at some data from the National Bureau of Economic Research, there have been ups and downs going back to 1857, long before the establishment of the Fed in 1913. Also, England suffered a Great Depression in the 1620s. I don't think there was a Fed then either. In fact, looking at the stats at the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, since 1945 to 2001, the average severity of the contractions have been half of what they were from 1854 to 1919. Remember, the Fed came about in 1913. And the average length of the booms have been double. Again, I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Rather than stop the inflation, in 1971, President Richard Nixon refused to redeem any more dollars. The dollar would no longer have even the illusion of a fixed value against other currencies. It would float against them, causing even more dislocation in foreign trade and massive uncertainties for businessmen. In part four, we're told Nixon took the USA off the gold standard and let the U.S. greenback's value float. This is, of course, what major currencies do today. There's no fixed value, hence exchange rates. Money banking in the Federal Reserve tells us this led to massive uncertainties for business. Oh dear. In other words, you need to buy Japanese steel, but you're never sure day to day how much that steel is going to cost you because the American dollar could gain or lose value. So it's hard to name a future price for your product made from steel. Ah, the future. Future. Wait, boy wonder. The plural of future is futures, and money is exchanged. Futures exchange. Wow, someone should invent an exchange that allows companies to agree to buy U.S. dollars in future at some set price, and then secure in the knowledge they have a right to buy those dollars at an agreed-upon exchange rate. This then removes the uncertainty. Oh wait, we have that. See, any uncertainty about any future price of any commodity from wheat to currency is solved quite nicely by a futures exchange. Money banking in the Federal Reserve concludes we need to have money backed 100% by gold. This removes the ability of the government to create money and inflation, and we could then do away with fractional reserve banking. For the folly in this later point, see the previous podcast. The movie concludes sound money means economic prosperity. Again, no. A sound economy, where people are producing things efficiently, means economic prosperity. Let's look at Zimbabwe, for example. Suppose Zimbabwe was on the gold standard. Pretty sound money. But does Zimbabwe currently produce anything? No. How exactly would sound money help Zimbabwe? The thrust of money banking and the Federal Reserve is money no longer represents something real anymore, like gold. A paper dollar can't be exchanged for gold, but only for another paper dollar. Er, last time I checked, I could exchange a dollar for a lot more than another dollar. I could exchange it for goods and services. In 41 years, I have never thought, gosh, sure wish I had some gold to put under my bed. All I can do with this crappy money is exchange it for laptops, cars, vacations, and mutual funds. Those who want to return to the gold standard argue money needs to be backed by something real. And gold and silver are real. 
However, fiat currency, as they like to call it, is just backed by the perception it has value and perceptions can change. They don't like that. But let's take a step back. Gold is real, sure, but so is a car. A car has utility. What utility does gold have? For most of us, it's very pretty. Aside from use in industry and electronics, gold has little utility to the majority of us. It is itself backed by an idea, the idea that it's pretty. Now, money today is backed by the total economic output of a nation. It's backed by the perception that a nation produces something of value. It's backed by the perception that if I accept an American or Canadian dollar, I can, without restriction, exchange it for something useful or desirable. The more value the nation produces, more the money is worth. In a modern economy, does it make sense that money should be backed by a perception, the perception of gold's value, a perception that is no way representative of a nation's economic output? Further, there's an important economic role to a currency that rises and falls based on the perception of what it can be exchanged for. If a currency starts to fall in value, that sends important signals to business and the government that the nation has to start producing what the world wants. Now, those who argue for the gold standard will say, but if we fix gold at one price, it doesn't matter what the nation produces, the money will always retain a known value. There's two problems with this. First, if your nation is producing so little of value that you can only take refuge in the gold that backs it, and you're seriously considering exchanging your dollars for gold, you've got a lot more things to worry about than the actual value of your currency. This would mean your nation isn't producing food, goods, or anything. We're talking chaos. At this point, it would make far more sense to make your currency freely exchangeable for rifles and bullets. You're going to need them a lot more than gold. Second, if the only things backing your dollar is gold, the nations you trade with won't bother with your currency if you don't have anything else to offer. They'll take the gold directly. Why should they bother with the paper? Consider Britain during World War II. The US wasn't accepting British pounds for war materials. The US was taking gold in direct payment. Or consider Britain and China and the Opium War. China looked at the UK and found nothing they wanted in exchange for Chinese tea, except for the UK's gold and silver. And this brings us to another problem. Under a gold standard, you have to fix the price of gold. You can't create and destroy money as the price of gold rises and falls daily on the world market. More so, not every nation is going to be on the gold standard and will probably buy gold at a price higher than your nation's fixed price. So if the UK is paying $800 an ounce and the US fixes gold at $500 an ounce, you'd have to be more than drunk to keep your dollars. You'd take the gold, send it to the UK, make a 60% profit overnight, and then buy a DeLorean. Do they still make those? I don't know. I'm not a car guy. Anyway, there's not a lot of gold in the world and it's not easy to dig up more. Gold reserves can quickly become depleted in very short order, especially in a modern economy. At the end of the day, a gold standard is basically saying there is a fixed amount of value on the planet, equal to all the gold mined out of the earth. Gold standard creates a condition called mercantilism, where the object of the economy is to simply gain access to the other people's gold and limit their ability to gain access to your gold.
So that means tariffs on imports, which result in a reduction in trade between nations. It's been said many times, when the trade of goods can't cross borders, armies will. Now, lots of people have real problems with the Fed. However, a problem with the Fed is not synonymous with a return to the gold standard and the elimination of fractional reserve banking. On a related note, the failings of the Fed in the 1930s is not evidence of a problem with the Fed today, any more so than problems with voting in Chicago in the 1930s is indicative of problems with democracy today. Economist Milton Friedman was a big critic of the Fed, however, he did not advocate a return to the gold standard. His view was the Fed should simply be replaced by a computer that automatically expands the money supply. All right, so that brings us to the end, I guess, of uh, this little two-part thing on the Fed. Uh, that would be, I think this will be, uh, while it's podcast seven, I will call these two parts podcast six. So I still owe you at least a six more in my projected 12 podcast series on conspiracy theories of today and the not-too-distant past. Bye for now.